Testament Reading Plan podcast. I'm your host, Joel, and today we're focusing on Judges 6 through 11. You can find and subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. All the links are in the show notes. Or if you'd like, you can just search Old Testament Reading Plan podcast and you might find it. Now, if questions come up during the course of your reading, please feel free to ask them at bit.ly slash ask hyphen ot. Once again, that's B-I-T dot L-Y slash capital A lowercase sk dash capital O capital T. Throughout our lives, I think we constantly evaluate other people and ideas. There are some folks who inspire us and others don't have that gift. There's a certain warmth some people bring. Their presence encourages us. We can call that attraction charisma. It's a certain sort of magnetism that causes us like, to nod along with what the charismatic person says and does. There are some ideas that have a form of this charisma as well. Somehow charismatic people, charismatic ideas connect in a special way to our souls. They resonate with what drives us. Such charisma is a gift. In fact, when Paul in Second, or excuse me, First Corinthians twelve talks about the spiritual gifts, the Greek word Paul uses is charis, or, or yeah, charis. It means gift. It's where we get the word charisma. But having charisma doesn't mean a person or an idea has integrity. Not everything that resonates with us is perfect or even good. There are times when, re- when, when what resonates with my soul is like vengeance or getting even with someone, even when that's not proper or appropriate. At times, it's not enough for something to have charisma. It must also have integrity or, or, or character. When a person or an idea has character, what I mean by that is that it stands on a trustworthy foundation. Charisma draws you in. Character makes it so it lasts for the long haul. Charisma and character aren't opposites. People and ideas can have both. They can have neither, or they can have a strange combination of the two. Especially as we read through the book of Judges, the two are seen as independent. And the heroes of Judges, while they're often charismatic, they have questionable character. We see this in the stories of our two main characters in our reading this week, Gideon and Jephthah. Both have some sort of divine gift, charisma, to lead others, yet both make some profound errors in judgment. They lack character. Let's get into the text. As we look at Judges 6, 7, and 8, we see one of the most popular stories, maybe behind Samson in the book of Judges. Gideon is is a close second, particularly among children's Bibles. His story takes up four chapters, including uh, the the final chapter uh, with his son Abimelech. And that's a significant portion of Judges. And uh, a ton of stories are happening or are being referred to in the background of the Gideon story. First, we see the call of Gideon, which resembles in some ways the call of Moses and other prophets. In response to God's call, the would-be prophet demurs, suggesting, oh, I'm not equipped for the, word, for the work that God has for me. This initial resistance happens in nearly every call story. It's a way for the one God calls to maintain humility in the face of the awesome work they're called to do. 
Later in the story, we also see echoes of the golden calf, along with some foreshadowing of the David and Absalom conflict that we see in 2 Samuel, um, some of the foreshadowing with Elijah in 2 Kings, some foreshadowing with how David gathers up a band of misfits in, in, in 2 Samuel as well, but we'll get to those. First, we see Gideon. And he tears down the idols in his father's house, which might have been one of the most difficult things for him to do after being called by God. See, it's easy to know that we need to oppose our enemies. Like, that's like, duh, we can do that. But to know when and how to stand in opposition to our family, to our friends, to the people who are part of us, not them, that's hard. That takes more than just charisma. That takes character. Indeed, Gideon's father sees the combination of charisma and character displayed by his son and helps to shield him from the wrath of the village, suggesting, look guys, Baal, or Baal, can fight his own fights. That was, uh, Baal uh, was the, the Israelite idol uh, that was there. And, and he begins to call his son, instead of Gideon, Jeroboam, which means let Baal contend or let Baal contend. We'll hear an echo of this when we get to the story of Elijah next year, confronting the prophets of Baal and 2 Kings. And, and this all seems to confirm Gideon's call in the eyes of everyone but Gideon. Gideon, <laughs> he wants a sign from God before starting a war with the Midianites. I mean, I can't really blame him. The Midianites were powerful people uh, with camels, with chariots that had uh, been terrorizing the Israelites for some time now. And so Gideon asks God for a sign. And this story, I think, is, is pretty instructive. There are times that we want something concrete we can point to, some sign from God. But we ask for something outrageous, like saying, God, if you don't want me to do this thing, make $10,000 appear in my checking account. Like, that's ridiculous, right? This is trying to use God like a magic genie. Either I get to do what I want or I get $10,000, so I win either way. But what Gideon does instead is ask for something that offers no net gain, something that isn't visible to those around him, and yet something that is unusual, something that wouldn't happen by itself. So I did this once in high school. I wanted to ask a girl to a dance. And so uh, this girl uh, went to the same church as I did. So I talked with God all the week leading up to Sunday. And I was like, God, I want to do this. And if that's what you would have me do, Lord, have her sit next to me at church. Now, this was something that didn't usually happen. And it was something that wouldn't have been noticeable, though, if it did happen. So it, it didn't really offer a net gain. It's something that wasn't really visible to those around me. And it's something that's unusual. It checked these boxes we see in, in the sign that Gideon asked for. If she didn't sit next to me, I told God, I won't ask her to the dance. So that morning, that Sunday morning, I come to church and there's a handful of things. This is a larger story for another time. There's a handful of things that happen. And um, I end up sitting next to a, a different young woman who I would end up marrying later in life, uh, which looking back on this, I laugh because I didn't ask God to sit me next to the person that I would fall in love with. I asked God really just about this dance. And looking back on it, I can laugh. I can say, you know, God, you were just showing off, man. But this is, I think, how we can ask for a sign sort of in the mold of Gideon. And we see Gideon's character in this. We also see his charisma in how he's able to... to 
take that sign from God and then convey the importance of his leadership to those who would follow him. He, he gets 32,000 people in his army and then he whittles it down to 300. Whoa. All of this so that no one would say it was by Israel's might that Israel triumphed over the Midianites. This allows for God to get all the glory, that 1% of your fighting force you're taking with you. He was able, with his charisma, to get those 300 to fight a massive army at his side. By following God, even when God seemed to be leading him in a foolish direction, Gideon shows enormous strength of character. And he clearly, after uh, he, he wipes, off, wipes out the Midianites, he clearly displays qualities of leadership as well. We can see this in his interaction with the Ephraimites after the battle. They come to him. They're upset because he didn't expressly invite them to go to war alongside him to get the glory, I suppose. And he flatters them. Instead of taking their initial upsetness as an excuse to go to war with them, Gideon works to smooth over the conflict. He flatters them. He, he, he suggests that uh, they were instrumental in the war effort. They took care of these generals. We see in Gideon a vision for the people of Israel to be united, a vision which causes him to take great offense when the next two cities refuse to assist his army as they're chasing uh, one of the Midianite kings or a couple of the Midianite kings through, through the, uh, the, the, the countryside there. So before killing the kings or the generals that he was pursuing, he then goes back to the cities and ransacks and destroys them for their failure to provide for his, his troops. And this forces us as readers to begin wondering about the character of this man Gideon, which up until now had been no cause for concern. But as he begins to win, as he begins to triumph over his enemies, he begins to take more and more solace in his own skills, less and less in God's. The final straw here comes when the people try to make him king. He refuses, but then he's like, uh, maybe, maybe what was going through his mind is, I don't want this people to be upset with me. Maybe I should find something to placate them. I know, I'll make them something, an ephod. This is a priestly garment. And so he has them melt down all of the gold, all the plunder from, from this war against the Midianites. And then he creates this golden ephod in a scene very reminiscent of how Aaron created the golden calf in response to what the people demanded of him in Exodus 32. This is the risk that comes with people-pleasing. People-pleasing ultimately is, is one of the key ways of showing charisma without character. There are times, yes, that people know what they want and, and what's best for them. But speaking personally, I know I don't always choose what's best for me. There are nights when I have trouble sleeping, and when that happens, it's because I've chosen to let my mind do work when I should be encouraging it to rest. There are times when, instead of focusing on my work when I'm at work, my mind wants to uh, play, wants to do something more fun. And what I need to do is what's best for me, which is to work in the hours I'm supposed to work, to rest, to play in the hours I'm supposed to rest and play. Frequently, in spite of trying to be a person of character, I need others to help refocus me on what matters. 
In the Reformed tradition of Christianity, we believe in the human tendency toward brokenness and sin in spite of any good intentions we bring to our projects. We need others' help in order to be people of character on a regular basis. We need others' help to avoid falling into the trap of people-pleasing all of those we lead. And we also need others' help to avoid people-pleasing what we think is good. We need a group of people around us who are willing to guide us, to tell us no, to refocus us. Now, however critical we may be of Gideon, his son is worse. There's a delicate balance in caring for children. On the one hand, for children to be successful, they need to have chances to fail, perhaps even spectacularly. If they're not given chances to fail spectacularly, they don't know what it feels like to pick themselves up and to try again. But on the other hand, in order for children to be successful, they need to have guidance so that they know what, how to behave in life, the difference between right and wrong, how to, how to play well with others. This balance between freedom on the one hand and structure on the other is a moving target. It's difficult to hit it correctly on a regular basis for those of you who are raising children, for those of you who have children in your life that you're mentoring or whatever that looks like, you know this. And even when we get it right, even when we offer opportunities to fail while also equipping children to do well, that doesn't guarantee a positive outcome. Gideon may well have been a terrific father, although his son's name, Abimelech, meaning my father is king, suggests he might also have uh, nourished some desire still to be kings, despite of what he communicated to the people of Israel and thought that his son might be able to fulfill that dream for him, uh, which suggests that maybe he wasn't the best father. But regardless, although we aren't assured of getting it right with our children, both those who have children by blood and those uh, who have children through their own mentoring or influence. Despite that, it's integral that we pass along authority, leadership, power to our children. We need to make sure that the platforms we have as adults, we are not barring our children from having. We do nobody any favors by hanging on to authority or power that we need to pass to the next generation. Each generation needs to be able to, to find their own way with this authority and power that comes from, from being sort of the, the, the head honcho, the chief in charge. And, you know, the next generation may use power and authority differently than we would. And that's okay. Because the way that we would use power or authority might be best for our people, for our generation, but the way the next generation might utilize power and authority, yeah, they may screw up just as we screwed up, but they also may be able to do a new thing that God has called them to. Now, Abimelech is a case study in what this doesn't look like. He uses and abuses the power that he's given, and, and despite the terrible losses he inflicts upon his family, it's this very power that proves to be both his undoing and the undoing of the elders and nobles in Shechem who enabled him, who propped him up. This frequently happens with those whose charisma outpaces their character. 
they caused their own downfall, as well as the downfall of many of those who had propped them up in the first place. I, I heard this put really well once. That's what we idolize, we will eventually demonize. If we are putting somebody else as, uh, up as savior of the world, well, that person is not going to be able to hold that degree of perfection, and they will crumble under the, the lack of character. This happens no matter how good somebody acts. Now, there's still a terrible tragedy here, despite the fact that Abimelech was able to bring down a number of these wicked elders and, and, and nobles uh, in, in the country of Shechem. The, the terrible tragedy is that of the 70 sons of Gideon, only one survives. We'll hear echoes of this tragedy in the story of King David as we get there at the end of 2 Samuel. So after the narrative of Gideon and his family, we get a small palate cleanser. Two other judges arise, Tola and Jair, and no story accompanies them. There are some of these judges who are just named and then we move on. We also see Israel becoming a people without character pursuing other gods instead of the god that brought them up from Egypt. And as a result, they begin losing ground against several different people groups. But again, just as people with great charisma and little character are self-defeating, a people, uh, an entire people without character, it's self-limiting. Either Israel's going to repent or Israel's going to perish. And in this case, Israel repents. They cry out to God. And, and I want you to notice this pattern because it will come up over and over again in the story of Israel. It may come up in the story of, of, of the church or of your own life. That peace tends to lead to idolatry. Idolatry leads to conflict. Conflict leads to persecution. Persecution leads to repentance. And then repentance leads to peace before the cycle begins all over again. It's indicative of a failure of character in times of plenty, in times of peace. The way to break this cycle is for peace not to lead to idolatry. This is the promise of heaven that there will need to be no sun because God will be the light. Uh, all will see God at all times. There will no longer be any pain because peace will lead to more peace, will lead to more peace. Idolatry won't be an option. It is important, yes, to turn to God when times are difficult, but just as important, if not more, to pursue God when life feels easy, when life feels peaceful. People of Israel are not very good at this, and we struggle with this as well. So the people cry out to God. They repent. They confess. And in response to the people's cry, God sends another judge named Jephthah, a man from Gilead. Jephthah had been driven out of Gilead. As, as we read in the text, because he was the son of a prostitute. Perhaps he was thought to be a threat to the inheritance of the other children Jephthah's father had within, uh, the, within his own marriage. So away from his family, Jephthah gathers a band of misfits to assist him in some guerrilla warfare. We're going to see this theme echoed in the story of David as well, when he recruits some mercenaries and other villainous ne'er-do-wells while hiding from Saul among the Philistines. So Jephthah grows strong enough to get back on the radar of Gilead's elders, and Gilead uh, is, is being persecuted. There's a problem here. The elders of Gilead had been complicit in throwing Jephthah out of his home, but they want to use Jephthah's strength, they want to use his band of warriors to lead them in battle with the Ammonites. 
This problem gives Jephthah an opportunity, and we see Jephthah's charisma clearly here. He bargains with the elders to become their chief and captain, not only during the war effort, but afterwards as well. We can see two things by how Jephthah tries to open up diplomacy with the Ammonites. First, Jephthah is shrewd enough to try and take care of a conflict before it comes to bloodshed. But second, the people of Israel were still aware, they had still been learning of how God had brought them up out of the land of Egypt and out of the wilderness into the land of Canaan. We see that in how Jephthah responds to the Ammonite king. He clearly has a grasp of history. So that means that the rebellion of the people was in spite of remembering their history, not because nobody was teaching their history. They had not forgotten what God had done for them. They just weren't acting as if it mattered. And this is an important difference. There's an opportunity for some mercy for generations who we don't teach about God, I think. But that opportunity for mercy, that window is is much narrower if you've been taught and you still decide to rebel. So diplomacy fails. Jephthah proposes a bargain with God. In contrast to Gideon, he doesn't ask for a sign prior to the battle. The battle itself is the sign, and he offers a blank check to God for after the battle, provided God gives him victory. This rash promise is completely unnecessary because God cannot be bought. Those who think God can be bought are likely able to be bought themselves. It suggests that Jephthah is open to being bought. It suggests Jephthah's character is suspect. More than this, though, Jephthah doesn't put guardrails on his blank check. When his daughter emerges from the house, what choice does he have but to follow through with his promise? Well, perhaps the best choice at that moment would have been to consider the type of God he serves. Is God honored by child sacrifice? No. Even the writer of the book of Judges avoids mentioning the act of Jephthah sacrificing his daughter. There's no scene in Judges like in the binding of Isaac where uh, something emerges and God puts a stop to the sacrifice. Instead, God allows for human freedom to do something in God's name that is horrifying. It's atrocious. If Jephthah had had a stronger character he might have advocated for clemency from his oath. After all, isn't God the type of God who would have given that to him? Character sometimes means speaking truth to power, even speaking truth to God. That's all for Judges 6 through 11. Next week, we'll read Judges 12 through 17 where we'll see the end of Jephthah's story, we'll see all of Samson's story, and we'll begin the story of how the tribe of Dan ended up in the north of the Promised Land. May God bless you in your reading of Scripture.